There are times, Lord, when we are not sure about our next step. We're not sure about <clears throat> a major decision that is on the table. And we're not quite sure which way to go. We thank you that you have promised to teach us. In Psalm 32, you told David, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And that was after the greatest moral failure of his entire life. And he thought you were finished with him and he thought it was over. And uh, when he came clean and quit playing church, as we would call it, and when he was honest and broken before you, that's when you said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the, as the horse or the mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in check. So often, Lord, we will ask you to lead us. We will sense through your word. We will sense through good biblical counsel from friends the direction that you want us to go. And then, amazingly enough, sometimes we will pull against you because we want to go another way. I would pray for each of us that we would be willing to lay aside what we think is best that we would be willing to lay aside our plans, which are so feeble. I mean, honestly, they're so feeble, they're they're so short-sighted, we're so misinformed. And that you would give us the wisdom to know that the best way to go is to simply follow the shepherd. So many of us, Lord, have... uh, have had to learn the hard way, and we've got the the scars, and we've got the bruises from from having to run into brick walls, that we were counseled about ahead of time. No, you don't want to go that way. No, don't, don't go that way. Yet we went ahead and did it anyway. We would pray, Lord, that we would learn, wherever we are in life, that we would learn that your way is the best way. We pray, Lord, that we would, as we wait upon you and as we ask you for wisdom and as we ask for direction, that when you give it to us, we would be quick to obey and quick to respond. Quite frankly, it is dangerous to keep coming to a church like this on Sundays, um, uh, maybe to a, a Bible study Sunday morning before we come to the main service Sunday morning and then to come again Wednesday night. It is dangerous to do this if we are not willing to do what you want us to do. It is dangerous to just be people who ingest the word of God. It is dangerous to be a man who is just a hearer and not a doer. So would you teach us? Would you instruct us? This, uh, our, our subject tonight is sobering. It, it is actually frightening. Would you help us to listen up? You know what's best for us you, you want to give us your favor and your instruction, 
help us to wise up and listen and save ourselves the pain when we can enjoy your favor. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I started this study on David, and the approach was simply going to be looking at the life of David through the lives of the men and women that God brought into his life. That was the approach. Uh, Some of us have been in a study through the life of David, or two or three over the years. But to specifically look at David's life and the key people that God used in his life at strategic times, in your life as you look back over your life, There have been people that have been uh, strategically placed by God in your life. Some for your benefit, some uh, that rubbed you the wrong way. But they're all part of the process that God uses to build us and conform us into the image of Christ. Um, And when I started this study, I had a rough idea of the individuals that I wanted to cover. And some, when I started the study, and I was thinking about it before we commenced the study, I wasn't quite sure. There were some guys that were for sure I was going to do. Others were in the maybe list. Uh, The guy we're going to do tonight is in the maybe list. But now he's on the list. And uh, maybe... And and I've been kind of circling the airport on this guy. And I wasn't quite sure. And I, I, I had him on the list, and I took him off. And I had him on the list, and I took him off. He's not as well known. A week ago, Joe Paterno was the most celebrated football coach in America. Not just because of his record, but because of his program. Not just because of the number of wins that he had had over so many years, but because of the type of individual and the type of values that he had espoused in one place for such a long time. I remember reading a clip uh, in Sports Illustrated years and years ago when a particular pro team came after Paterno and offered him, as they do with college coaches who are successful, a boatload of money. Can't even remember what team it was. It's quite a while ago. They offered him a boatload of money, and he pretty much had decided, you know, that's just something you can't pass up. And just prior to pulling the trigger, one night he was talking with his wife, and they were talking about their life and where they lived and what they... And he decided, I'm not doing this. I'm not going after that money. I love my life. I love what I'm doing. Why do I need all that? So along the lines, we've seen markers and we've seen things that have caused us to appreciate the kind of life that he lived. And a week later, it's all gone. What, what, what an unspeakable tragedy. David, uh, David knew all about that kind of experience. When you look at David's life, 
and you start rolling through 2 Samuel, in the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, David is on an unbelievable roll. He, he, finally has, um, he finally has been released from the tyranny of Saul chasing him for 10, 11 years. He's finally released from the tyranny of living in the caves. Uh, Saul is dead. Now he is free to take the position that God said he was going to give to him. It didn't happen overnight. It was a process, but things in 2 Samuel begin to turn for him. And slowly but surely, he begins to unite a divided nation. Uh, It's one success after another after another. He is never defeated in battle. Never. He is on a roll. He unites the kingdom. God's favor is upon him. He is growing stronger and stronger. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And everybody in the world knows the story of 2 Samuel 11. And I'm not going to really spend any time on it. You know the story that David was on the roof of of his home in he was the king, so his house in Jerusalem of the hills, he had the highest, uh, the, the house on the highest place. His patio, uh, rooftop patio, looked down over everything. You know the story. He saw Bathsheba quite a ways away. Young, beautiful woman getting into her uh, bathtub. He saw her. Uh, he calls her. Uh, he sleeps with her. Uh, commits sexual immorality. She, he gets word a little bit later from her that she's pregnant. He brings her husband, who is a man of great honor, Uriah the Hittite, uh, one of David's mighty men, brings him back from the battle uh, for a report. Uriah, tell me what's going on. That's wonderful, great. Now you go home and enjoy your wife and a little R&R away from the battle. Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife because he was a man of honor. If his guys couldn't be with their wives, they're out there at battle. He's not going to be with his wife, even though no one would have blamed him for doing it. David tries again the next night. Gets a little wine in him. Once again, he won't do it. So then David's got to send him back to battle. Says to Joab, put him in the hottest place of battle and pull back from him. Turn with me uh, to Galatians chapter 6. This is... um, You know, when you... when you see something like we've seen over the last few days, it, it, it is so disheartening. And the other thing that it is, it is frightening. I, I have over the years seen better men than me go down. And I'm sure that you have too. I, I think of uh, when I was in college and some men who had a great influence on in my life Uh, in terms of teaching me the scriptures, and I looked at those guys, and I was around 20, and they were in their early 40s, and I thought, and I remember having dinner with one of those guys in particular, and his wife and four kids, and he he taught the Bible, and and I thought, you know what, I want to be like that guy. He he had what I hoped to have one day. Didn't know, I I never aspired to his degree of success, and he had it. And man, was I ever devastated, along with a lot of other people, when it came out that he was a serial adulterer. He was the first of many I've come across who were powerful communicators of the gospel. 
who don't have the character to match their gifts because they've ridden on their gifts and never developed what's on the inside. In Galatians chapter 6, there is a very sober warning that is given. Um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. Know this. When David was on that rooftop that night, instead of being with his men in battle, know this. When he looked and saw her, here is, we have an enemy that hates us. If you love Christ, you have an enemy that hates you because you love Christ. He's going to do what he can do to take you out. He is the deceiver. We read right here in Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. In other words, do not kid yourself. Understand something. Understand something that is so foundational to the spiritual life. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Uh, if, you, if you sow bad seed, bad seed's coming up. If you sow good seed, good seed will come up. If you sow, if you sow ryegrass, you're not going to get St. Augustine. Whatever you sow is what's going to come up. Now that's true in the physical world. It's true in the spiritual realm of things. If, if you sow seeds of sexual immorality, you're going to reap the harvest of sexual immorality. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. He was deceived by his own sin. He was tempted. Lust took root in his heart. He calls for the woman. I mentioned uh, earlier Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. After he sinned and he covered it for a year, Nathan the prophet confronts him. And as we'll see in a minute, in 2 Samuel 12, David repents. There seems to be a lot of confusion among Christians about how grace fits in with our sin. And um, I came across a quote from a guy named Charles R. Swindoll. Thought I'd read it to you. Chuck writes this, Grace means that God, in forgiving you, does not kill you. He's basing that on Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Grace means that God, in forgiving you, watch this, gives you the strength to endure the consequences. See, a lot of Christians think that grace means you're forgiven and there will be no consequences. That's not what grace means. Let me, say, let me repeat what Chuck is saying again. Grace means that God, in forgiving you, gives you the strength to endure the consequences. Grace frees us so that we can obey our Lord. It does not mean sin's consequences are automatically removed. If I sin and in the process of sinning break my arm, when I find forgiveness from sin, I still have to deal with a broken bone. That's just wisdom right there. That's common sense biblical wisdom. 
Isn't it amazing how we will accept that in the physical realm? Not a person reading these words would deny that. A broken arm is a broken arm whether I have been forgiven or whether I'm still living under the guilt of my sin. But the same happens in the emotional life. When a parent willfully and irresponsibly acts against God's written word, not only does the parent suffer, but the family suffers as well. And that means internal trouble that seriously affects other family members. So this guy, when I was 20-something and he was 40-something, and I'm with him, and I would go to his Bible study and drive a long way to hear him preach, speak every week to a bunch of college students, uh, did his serial adultery affect his wife and those four kids? Yeah, big time. Why? Because there are consequences. You cannot stand up and teach something and live something differently and expect it all to be under grace and for you not to have to deal with your stuff. Now, we all know that. But when we're tempted, see, here's the thing about temptation. And here's the thing about that night on the roof. He, he looks out there and he sees her getting in that tub. And she looked good. Dad, gum, did she look good. She looked so good that he got deceived. See, temptation deceives you from really thinking something through. Because what happens is you get so caught up in the immediate pleasure that is possible that you throw out all rational thinking about consequences and go ahead and jump in where you never should go. And we've all done it to one degree or another. Thomas Brooks, old Puritan pastor. See, there's wisdom. There's wisdom when you're tempted. There is wisdom when you're tempted to try. Gosh, I'll tell you. Here's, this, here's the deception of sin, is that we put blinders on. I've been reading uh, Seabiscuit. I, I, I love to read theology. I've been reading a lot of theology, and I, need something, I needed something light this week, and uh, I'd seen the movie, I'd never read the book. Man, that's a good book. And I'm reading about Seabiscuit, and uh, anyway, one of the things I learned about Seabiscuit was that Seabiscuit had a tendency to go right into the rail, and a lot of those tracks are banked, and especially if there's been rain, you know, all, it, it all, all the mud congregates right there where Seabiscuit wanted to go. And this trainer that worked with Seabiscuit figured it out, so he had to put blinders on it. Because if he could see that rail, he wanted to go right there, you see. But if he went over there, he wasn't going to be effective because he wasn't much of a mudder as a horse. The way his legs were, he wasn't good in mud. They had to keep him on the dry turf. So they had to put blinders. And see, when we see, when we see the temptation and we see just the allurement and the beauty and the immediate gratification uh, we are blind to the possibility of hitting that rail and going down. We've all screwed up, all of us. And when we come to Christ, what a great Savior He is in forgiving us 
and picking us up and encouraging us. Are, are there consequences? Yeah, there are consequences, but we're forgiven. And you see, here's the other thing. We can learn and we can grow and we can have some smarts for the next time around. We don't have to keep doing this stuff. The power of Christ is within us and the Spirit of God is within us. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. John Owen used to say, either we are killing sin or sin is killing us. You can't be passive about this stuff. Thomas Brooks puts this so well. Talking about our friend Joe, who's will die any day. He's just right there, and he knows it. Gathered the family together the other night. Thomas Brooks says this. By the way, how are you going to live on your dying day? Your last day on earth. How are you going to live? Listen to what Brooks says. It is your duty and glory to do that every day that you would willingly do upon your dying day. Ah, how you would live and love upon your dying day. How you would admire God, rest upon God, delight in God, long for God, and walk with God upon your dying day. How you would hate, loathe, and abhor your deepest sins upon a dying day. Thrice happy. Triple happy is that soul that labors with all his might to do that at first that he would give a thousand worlds to do on a dying day. Man, if David had been on that rooftop and responded as he would have on his dying day. You look back over your life and I look back over my life and we wouldn't have made a decision if we could have acted like we would act on our last day on earth. Right? Because you know you're facing it right there. But we get deceived and we get conned. So tonight I want to talk about a guy that's a little bit obscure. But he's a fascinating figure and he played a very key role in David's life. Um, and he ties in with everything I just talked about. His name is Ahithophel. That's quite a name. Ahithophel. How many of you guys are familiar with Ahithophel? Very few. That's what I figured. That's why he wasn't on my for sure list. But you know when he got on my for sure list? I was pondering this guy, as I said, on and off, on and off. And uh, I, I had moved him pretty much up next. Just a day or two before the thing with Paterno happened. And when I watched this develop, I thought, yep, that's the guy. That's where we're going next. Now, who is this guy? Uh, well, here's what I want to do. I want to give you the Reader's Digest version because I, I don't have time to read all the passages that deal with this guy. So I'm going to give you a kind of a, uh, a flyover of his life. Uh, Herbert Lockyer has written this. He says, There was no one who could hold a candle to Ahithophel in his day as an able and famous politician. A, a key verse would be 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23. And we read this there. His counsel, the counsel of Ahithophel, 
was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. Ahithophel was an elder statesman. He was wise. He would be sought by members of both parties on both sides of the aisle. He was wise. He was astute. He was discerning. Um, if you wanted wisdom, you would talk to Ahithophel. Such counsel was a proverb in Israel in David's time, that which is quoted in 2 Samuel 16, verse 23. The great commentator Matthew Henry speaks of Ahithophel as a politic thinking man and one that had a clear head and a great compass of thought. I like that term, compass of thought. He just didn't think, but he had a compass. He knew where the North Star was, and that's why people sought him out. Now, here's what's really fascinating. Perhaps David and Ahithophel had been friends from their boyhood up and are before us mentioned in Psalms as chapter 41 of Psalms and chapter 55. So when you look at 41 and 55, which we don't have time to do, it's very, very possible that David and Ahithophel were boyhood friends, grew up together, knew each other. Uh, other than Jonathan, there was no one closer throughout his life to David than Ahithophel. But he's kind of fly, he kind of flies under the radar. And he really doesn't, I mean, you get glimpses here and there. But here's what happened to Ahithophel. Ahithophel, the wise and trusted counselor, however, was found unfaithful because he also thought of himself and not of David. Ahithophel joined Absalom and advised the prince to take his father's harem. Here's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to look at Ahithophel, and we're also going to notice how he was tied up in relationship with Absalom, who was one of David's sons. Uh, Absalom, at a particular point, rebelled against his father. And what he did was, he decided he was going to make himself king. This tended to happen among David's sons. But there was a reason that it happened. Uh, what happened when he rebelled against his father, Ahithophel joined him as his counselor. And at a certain point, Ahithophel gave him some advice. And the advice of Ahithophel was always taken because it was so wise. But in this case, Ahithophel gives advice, another man by the name of Hushai. Hushai said, I'm going to stay and I'm going to make Absalom think that I'm for him and his rebellion, but I will report to you what he's doing. And that's what he did, put his own life at risk. And usually the counsel of Ahithophel was accepted, but there was a situation where they then asked Hushai what he thought. He gave counsel, and they took Hushai's counsel and rejected Ahithophel's. Ahithophel left, put his things in order, and killed himself a tragic story. Now, how did this all start? Um, where's my stuff? An old Scottish preacher by the name of Alexander White. These are his sermons on different biblical characters. The guy was a machine. That was just unbelievable. And uh, 
Here's what he writes about Absalom. You say, wait a minute, I thought we were doing Ahithophel. Well, we are, but you see, when Absalom rebelled, Ahithophel left David and went to Absalom and became his counselor. And you go, why? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Here's how he starts his chapter on Absalom. He writes, polygamy is just Greek for a dung hill. I like this guy. David trampled down the first and best law of nature in his palace in Jerusalem, and for his trouble, he spent all his after days in a hell upon earth. Why would he have hell on earth? Because David kept adding wives. Before David ever got in trouble with Bathsheba, he got himself in trouble by violating Deuteronomy 17, 17, which says that the king of Israel should only have one wife. All the other... Well, all the other kings have many wives. You have it, the king of Israel is to be different. He's just to have one wife. Did David know that? Yeah. Did David write his own copy of the law out? Yes. Was he to read it every day? Yes. So was he aware of Deuteronomy 17, 17? Yes. That he was only to have one wife? Yes. Did he obey it? No. He gave himself permission to disobey it. He rationalized it away. Well, that's for other people. It's not for me. So he kept adding wives. And when he kept adding wives, he kept having kids. Built this palace. Unbelievable. Unbelievable spread. All the bedrooms, it's just unbelievable. Everybody's got their own game rooms. There's spas, jacuzzis. And you got all these wives with their kids. What do you got? One wife? A few kids? Think about your life with two wives and two different sets of kids under the same roof. Are you kidding me? Oh, then add another wife. Another set of kids. Then add another one. David had six, maybe eight, maybe 12, some scholars think, wives with sets of kids. And I know they do the reality shows, you know, the National Geographic documentary on the Mormon polygamist, and they're all so happy. And That's a crock. They're not happy. There's jealousy, there's dissension, there's... Listen to what... Uh, what's this guy's name? White. Listen to what this guy says. David's palace was a perfect pandemonium of suspicion and intrigue and jealousy and hatred, all breaking out, now into incest and now into murder, as we'll see in just a minute. And it was in such a household, if such a cesspool could be called a household, that Absalom, David's third son by his third living wife, was born and brought up. But be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a patriarch or a prophet or a psalmist soweth, that shall he also reap. For he, saint or sinner, that soweth to his flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. A little ring of jealousy and scheming parasites, all hateful and hating one another, collected round each one of David's wives. And it was in one of the worst of these wicked little rings that Absalom grew up and got his education. Then he goes on and says this, and this all had to do with David's sensuality. Not only did David have wives, he had concubines. Those were for his sexual pleasure. He couldn't go online, so he had concubines. And he had many wives. Uh, White writes, The inconceivable evil of sensuality was surely never more awfully burned in upon any sinful house than it was upon David's house. David, him, catch this, guys, 
David himself is a towering warning to all men and especially to all godly men against this master abomination. He never should have married more than one wife, and he did, and he kept giving himself permission. And as uh, was it F.B. Meyer who said when he actually saw Bathsheba that night, his sinful inclinations of the previous years predisposed him to sin. He was just a sitting duck because he kept giving himself permission sexually. David's, David's key sin was sexual immorality, and it turned into murder. And you know the story. Now let's go to, uh, let's go to 2 Samuel 12. Okay? <clears throat> and as we do this, as we do this, Here's what, here's what I want to say. If, if any man here tonight is in the process of entertaining the idea of pursuing a particular sin, which you know in your heart to be against the will of God, you should listen, and you should listen carefully. Because whatever it is that is deceiving you, we know it's the enemy, whatever it is that is enticing you, whatever it is that is promising you uh, an escape from your reality, uh, a, a fulfillment that you currently do, do not have, whether sexually or financially or in some other means that you think will improve your life for the short term that you can get away with, you are being set up. You're being set up. Second, uh, where am I? Second Samuel 12. So David goes ahead and, and sleeps with her, Bathsheba. You know that. And then he gets Uriah back, and he won't sleep with his wife, so he has to send him back and get him murdered. Okay. Now, note what happens. David covers it up. He covers it up for about a year. And then Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him about this wealthy landowner that has thousands and thousands of sheep. But there's a guy that lives next door who only has one little lamb. And what this guy does is uh, he steals the guy's one lamb and takes it for his own. And David gets all riled up and says, who is the man? And Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. And he was. After covering up his sin for a year. And you know, it's interesting because even in this situation we're reading about right now, there was an awareness, but there's, there's always a cover-up. There's always a cover-up. You know what the problem with the cover-up? It's going to be brought to light. Yeah, but you say, yeah, but what stays in, uh, what, what did I do in Vegas stays in Vegas. When did you start believing Vegas? They're the deceivers. You can be sure that your sin will... But, find you out. David gets found out here in 2 Samuel 12. Now watch what is going to happen. Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Those are the guys they were in battle with and they pulled back. Now watch this. Here are consequences. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me 
and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you, watch this, from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in the daylight. That's what you call consequence. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Remember Chuck said, grace is that he doesn't kill you? That's grace. We should all be dead because of what we have all done. Verse 14, however, by this deed... You've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick, and then the boy dies. Is that what David was thinking about when he was on the roof and saw her get in that tub? No. He deceived himself. But know this, if you sow sexual thoughts and give yourself license to pursue them, you will sow, you will reap what you sow. And you will live to regret the day. And there are guys in here that would tell you that because they've been there. So now the consequences are going to start rolling, okay? Uh, go to 2 Samuel 13, next chapter. Now, it was after this that Absalom, oh, here's Absalom, yeah. One of the boys, one of the boys in the big palace, you know? Probably got a Mercedes chariot. Probably 14 and probably already got a chariot. Got his own bedroom, got his own stuff. Everybody's got their own stuff. Everybody's got their stuff. Very wealthy, very privileged, very uh, prosperous. It was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. So Absalom and Tamar were from the same mother. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Who's Amnon? He's a half-brother by another woman who's in the same house. So you got this stepbrother that loves Tamar who's Absalom's sister. Amnon, uh, verse 2, was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard for Amnon to do anything to her. He wanted to sleep with her, but it's his half-sister, and he can't. So then, long story short, somebody advises him, and he decides that he's going to act like he's sick, and she comes to help him, and then he rapes her. Verse 15, when he raped her, verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. You teach your girls as they grow up not to let men use them physically. They need to hear that from you. You, you need to teach your daughters that there are men who will try to take advantage of them physically, but all those guys want to do is use them and then discard them. They should hear that from their dads. At the appropriate time, when they are at the appropriate age, dads should talk to their daughters. Don't be passive with your girls. Warn them. Talk to them. 
You're the most important man in their life. Right? Yep. Look at verse 20. So this guy rapes her, now he hates her guts. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon your... What? Now, now she's in 19, she's got ashes on her head, and she's in mourning. Absalom says, Hey, has Amnon your brother been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar returned, uh, remained, and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was angry. But that's all he was. He was angry. Did he go talk to Amnon? No. Did he go lead his family and handle the situation and dispense justice? No. He's a great warrior out there. But see, when it comes to his own home, you know what he was? He was passive. That's what he was. That's what the enemy wants for men. If you do nothing else except fight passivity, you're winning spiritual war. If, you're, if there are appropriate steps that need to be taken, and you're the husband and father, take them. Take them with balance, take them with wisdom, take them with discernment. But don't you be passive. The enemy's whole thing with Christian men is he wants to neutralize us. He doesn't care if you're successful in the business world. He doesn't care if you're on the cover of Fortune. He doesn't care if you you know, have some startup that makes $900 jillion. He doesn't care. But let you give influence and leadership in the family and be a leader and be the tribal chief. He's coming after you and he's going to do whatever he can do to keep you from doing that. So this horrific situation happens. David heard of these matters. He was angry. And that's all he was, was angry. Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. It came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. So this Absalom guy is no fool. He's just marking time. Two years goes by. Hey, man, how you doing? Good to see you. Hey, hey, hey. You know, everything's cool. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, good, good. See that game last night? Oh, man. Gosh, unbelievable. He's just biding his time. Two years goes by, everything looks like it's calm. Hey, I'm going to throw a party out here. Uh, okay, great. Yeah, yeah, good, good. So all the kings, everything's cool, so all the king's sons go. Verse 28, Absalom commanded his servant, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Watch this. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Okay? What were the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba? But the real consequences started before Bathsheba when he would not deal with disobedience in his own heart, in obeying God in regard to one wife. He kept adding wives, he kept adding wives, he kept adding wives, he kept disobeying, he kept disobeying. You can't get away with it. He was deceived, and whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. And the sword would never depart from his own house. And here it is. And it's just getting started. Go to verse uh, 34. So all the other king's sons, they get on their mules and they flee. Uh, verse 34, now Absalom had fled. Verse 37, now Absalom's going out of town. He's going to go see his grandfather, who is a king. 
Because you see, his mother is the daughter of a king who is a foreign king that doesn't, seem the, doesn't serve the one true living God, which is one reason that God said to the king of Israel, I don't want you marrying foreign women because they don't serve the one true living God and they'll turn your heart away, which is what happened to Solomon. Do you see, God has reasons. He has reasons, doesn't he? God has... Uh, Everyone's all here. Well, you know, it's just, it's all just, we're not under law. Really? So you're not under the Ten Commandments? When did God ever negate the Ten Commandments? Well, we're just under grace. Yeah, and He gives us the grace to obey. That's just nonsense. Thou shalt not steal. That's in the Bible. Let him who steals steal no longer. That's in Ephesians. You see, there's a heart change. Uh, so what does Absalom do? Now he's going to run off and he's going to go to the, the land of his grandfather and he's going to flee. Okay. Uh, 38. Absalom had fled, gone to Geshur, and was there three years. The heart of David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. So now Absalom is away because he's killed his brother. Okay? Um, he's away for quite a period of time. And then eventually, Joab says, hey, you've got to bring him back. So you get verse 23 of 14. You guys still with me? This is going somewhere. And let me tell you something. This is all screwed up. Isn't it? You remember what Alexander White said about a dunghill? This is not, how we, this is not what we want. So he convinces David, and he goes and gets uh, Absalom in 1423. However, the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. Now in Israel, in all Israel, was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. The guy was buff, he was cut, he just, the sucker was just... He looked like a king. He was like Saul. He looked like a leader. Interesting how these guys come along who look like they know what they're doing. So here's sort of a principle. If they look like they know what they're doing, maybe we ought to be thinking, I don't think they do. <laughs> Until they show me something, because I got biblical precedent to question guys who look like they know what they're doing, just because they look like it. Right? So let him prove it. Uh, 26. When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, Absalom, 28, lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. So David wouldn't see him, although he let him come back. Now look at verse 15. Watch him begin his campaign. He didn't have any campaign financing, but this sucker ran 24-7. And what's he going to do? He's going to try and topple his dad. Okay? Why does he want to topple his dad? Because he wants to get back at his dad. Why does he want to get back at his dad? Because there was a horrific wrong that was done, and his father didn't deal with it. Chapter 15, verse 1. 
Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. David didn't do this, by the way. David didn't travel like this. David had a mule. He had a nice mule, big mule, big sucker. David didn't go in caravans. David didn't go with entourages. Okay? But Absalom did. Verse 2. Absalom, watch this guy and watch how conniving. Remember how he waited two years to set up Amnon? Watch what he's going to do here. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. Why would he go to the gate? Because all the transactions were done at the gate. It was the business. It was the commerce. It was the legal stuff. It was okay. Absalom used to rise early, stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Well, see, that wasn't true, but he was saying it was true. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Be careful of someone who wants to be the judge. Unless you know their character. Because not everybody who wants to be a judge has right motives, do they? Do they? So get to know their character. Find out as much as you can about character. Right? Yeah, okay. Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, and everyone, every man who has any suit or cause would come to me, and I would give him justice. Oh, really? Like you did Amnon? And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. Watch this. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He was working the gates 24-7. And one by one, he picked them off. Man, if I was up there, man, it's too bad you don't have access to my dad. Man, you got a legitimate case, man. I wish I could be of help to you. One by one, he Picked them off. Uh, verse 7. Now about the end of uh, 40 years, Absalom said to the king, uh, I've made some vows, let me go to Hebron. The king says in 9, go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. Now here it comes. Here it comes. He's been setting this up for years. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Okay, now here we go. Took a while to set this up. Look at verse 12. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. You better believe it was strong. Now Ahithophel is with Absalom. And look what happens in 13. Then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel were with Absalom. David said to all of the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David takes his family, and what does he do? He leaves Jerusalem. Because he knows Absalom is outflanking. Okay, this is serious stuff. So David leaves. 2 Samuel 16, 15. Then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem. So, so now David's gone, so Absalom comes into Jerusalem. Oh, and note this. And Ahithophel was with him. Verse 20. Then Absalom 
said to Ahithophel, give your advice. What shall we do? Listen to the advice of Ahithophel, who was David's trusted counselor. Note what he says to this young guy, Absalom. It's amazing. Verse 21. Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. He had left his concubines because he figured they were safe. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. 22. So they pitched the tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. So to humiliate and denigrate his own father, he has sexual intercourse so that all Israel knows about it. And where did this horrific sexual display, where did it take place? On the roof. On the roof, in broad daylight, the same roof where David had seen Bathsheba and brought her to the roof. Now you got to ask this question. Ahithophel had, had a history with David, had loved David, had counseled David. David had trusted him. What happened? What would cause Ahithophel to break covenant with David and suddenly go after this young, raging, ambitious, out of control, whirling dervish of a son? What would cause, with all of his wisdom, what would cause Ab Abs uh, uh, Ahithophel to leave David and go after Absalom? Two clues. 2 Samuel eleven three. You guys ever hear the term Bible study? It's good to study the Bible. If you look at 2 Samuel eleven three. Back to the roof situation with David and Bathsheba. So David sent, he'd already seen her, inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, who is the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay. Now look at 2 Samuel 23, verse 34. It's talking about the mighty men of David. You get a list of men, boom, 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 one after the other. Notice um, verse 34, we read of Eliam, who was the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Now you put that together, and let me tell you what you got. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. And as Paul Harvey would say, <laughs> that's the rest of the story. Why would this guy who was so loyal to David, why would this guy that had counseled it, why? Right there. Bathsheba was his granddaughter. And he loved her. I don't have a granddaughter yet. I'm hoping. 
I'm spiking my kids' water. <laughs> we need to have a little granddaughter, wouldn't it? How many of you guys got a little granddaughter? Right? And everyone raising their hand. They're all smiling. They're all smiling. Yeah, two weeks. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? And to watch those little tiny, little, little, prissy, little, cute little girls. They're just little girls. Uh, you know, and they're not little boys. They're just little girls. They're different. Little boys are great. They're wonderful. Little girls are great, too. You get these little girls, and they somehow, little girls just melt. I remember when, when Rachel was, we had Rachel, and I, I was the oldest of three boys. And my dad would come over, and he didn't want to see me. He wanted to see Rachel. And he'd hold her, and he'd talk to her. And he'd just, you know, and then she'd get older, and she'd go spend the night at Grammy and Papa's, you know. And I remember one night I was putting her to bed, and she said, Daddy, and I said, yeah. She was maybe two and a half. She said, Daddy, tomorrow would you serve me breakfast in bed? <laughs> and I said, what? She said, tomorrow could you serve me breakfast in bed? I said, breakfast in bed. I said, where did you ever hear that? She says, Papa served me breakfast in bed whenever I go to his house. And I'm thinking, he never served me breakfast in bed. <laughs> but it's a little granddaughter. And she had his heart. She had him wrapped around her little finger. Right? Sweetest thing in all the world. Bathsheba was Ahithophel's little grandbaby. And I'm sure he prayed for her and the man that she would marry, and she found a gem, Uriah the Hittite. I mean, he was a gem of a man. Character. And David not only violated her, but David slaughtered him. And we wonder why. So why did he counsel Absalom to have sexual intercourse with the concubines on the roof in daylight? You can see why. Now let's say this. On David's side, there was sin. And on Absalom's side and on Ahithophel's side, there was sin. Two different sins. On David's side, his sin was murder. His sin was immorality that gave way to murder. His, his sin was perpetual, habitual immorality. The sin of Absalom and the sin of Ahithophel, at its very core with Absalom, was their immorality, yes, but at its very core, what was going on with Absalom and what was going on with Ahithophel was revenge. Revenge. We're going to get him back. I'm going to get him back. This stuff scares me. Because I know my own heart. So I've been talking to Mary this last week. We've had some conversations. 
And uh, about... Here's what I want to know from Mary. Do you see, what do you see in my life that I'm not seeing? What do you see in my life that I'm not dealing with? Where do you see me not responding to the Lord? Do you see anything? She says, Steve, you're without sin. Which is what she normally says, guys. I, I just, I don't know what else to tell you. And I was so proud. She, uh, she didn't say that. But as we talked about it, I, and, and we, just, we just talked. We talked for a couple hours about it. And then she asked me, she said, what do you see? Do you see anything with me? And we just talked. We just talked. And I've got to tell you something. There are three names from my past that whenever those three names come up, I flare up. And when I flare, it's not good. Because I immediately have an adverse reaction. You know why? Because all three of those guys, I think, did me dirty. And over the years, I've tried to read stuff on anger and all that. And, and I've got to be honest with you. I don't, most of the stuff I read on anger, I don't get. I, 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 it's, I just don't get it. It's too, I was reading something last week, and I put it down after about a half. I, I don't get this. I don't get, here's what I get. You know what I get? Here's what I get. When those names come up, and I have forgiven those guys, and I'll tell you something else. They would, if you talk with them, and they're good guys. They're good guys, and they love Christ. They love the Lord. We kind of got crossways, and nobody intended it for happen, but it did, and it affected our relation. We still care for each other, don't see each other too often because we're not uh, geographically close, and we don't travel in, uh, in the same circles anymore. But whenever those names come up, you know what I consciously try to do immediately? When one of those names come up, I pray for the guy. Yeah. I pray that I immediately ask God the blessing. Wherever he is, whatever's going on, whatever he's going about his business, following the Lord, I pray that God will send great favor on him, great blessing on his marriage, on his kids. You know, I, that, to me, that's how I deal with the anger. I just ask God to bless him because I don't want any harm to come to him. You see, because I probably did as much damage to them as I think they did to me. And you know what? We're all screwed up and can we untangle it? We've, we've talked and we've worked it out as best we can, and there's no, if I saw him today, hey, how are you? It'd be great. But I'm looking forward to heaven. Aren't you? All this crud will be cleaned up, and there's no residual effect and all that stuff. But as best I can now, I just ask, whenever the name comes, just bless them. Just bless them. Because I don't want to get deceived by start ruminating over the past. Well, I remember, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, I remember, and then I, can't, I still can't believe he did it. Don't even need to think about it. Just blessing. Just blessing. Does that make sense? I don't want to get deceived. I don't want to get pulled in. 
You know, yesterday I'm standing at the sink washing my hands, and all of a sudden I get this tingle right here. I mean, just tingle. And I wasn't thinking about a presidential candidate. I wasn't thinking about anything. I just got a tingle. And I thought, what, what is that? I mean, literally, I thought, what is that? And then uh, maybe 10 seconds later, I get a tingle right up here. So, what, what is that? What's going on? And then boom, right over here. And I'm, uh, so, what the heck? What is wrong with me? I mean, I, I thought, what, what the heck's going on here? Yeah, I mean, it was, I never had that happen in my life. And, and anyway, it stopped. Okay, I guess I'm, all right, I don't know what that was, but I walk into my office, I go to sit down in my chair, and as I'm going to reach for the arm of the chair, I look, and I've got a scorpion about this size on my shoulder. And I went, boom! Just like that. And I knocked that sucker so far, I can't find him. He's somewhere in my office. So I immediately Google scorpion bite. A sharp, tingling sensation that may be followed by double vision, insomnia, uh, uh, nausea, uh, vomiting, uh, oh, crud. Then I call the doctor. I get his nurse. Hey, I just got bitten by a scorpion. What do you think? Mean, you know, I need to come in there. And so, how long would it happen? About 15 minutes. Well, do you have any symptoms? I said no. Do you have any? I said I had this tingle thing in my leg, but it's gone away. Do you have any? Uh, no, 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 no. She said, You're going to be fine. <laughs> if any of that happens, come in immediately. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen. I need to deal with sin. as fast as I dealt with the bite of a scorpion. Because the bite of sin is actually more fatal. I can't harm it. What was that? I can't harbor it. See, see, I was very concerned. I was very, very concerned about what the ramifications, what the consequences could be in my life of that scorpion Biting me three different times. Oh, that I would be that concerned. And can I tell you what happened to Absalom and what happened to Ahithophel? David did them dirty. David never handled the situation in the home. He never handled the situation of his daughter being raped. He got angry, but he never dealt with it. He was passive, and he had a boy over there who was seething because of a father who showed no leadership. Then you got a trusted friend and a trusted counselor, and David takes advantage of his family, seduces his granddaughter. She is pregnant. David winds up murdering her husband. And that great-grandbaby that was also going to be Ahithophel's, died. And do you know what happened? The poison of resentment 
and bitterness was never dealt with. And it fouled and it festered. And gangrene set in. Guard your heart. For from it flows the wellsprings of life. Gentlemen, we cannot give ourselves permission to harbor sin. You deal with it. You kill it. It's the safest place to be. Is it not? Let's pray. So, Father, our own hearts are sick and wicked. Who can know our hearts? David, uh, in his prayer of brokenness and repentance, actually asked you, he said, Lord, create in me a new heart. A new heart. Boy, David blew it. But he sure knew he blew it. And he came clean. And a broken and, contra, a broken and contrite spirit you will not despise. We don't see that in Absalom. We don't even see it in Ahithophel. What a difference it would have made. Lord, what a difference it would have made that night. When David got the news that Bathsheba was pregnant. What a difference it would have made. And I, somebody that I read this week pointed this out. What a difference it would have made if he had a called for Uriah and sat down with Uriah man to man and told him the truth. It would have put a grinding halt to the consequences that he suffered. Lord, there's uh, nothing we can do about the past except bring it to you. But I would pray for us in the present. I would pray that you would give us a fear of sin. I pray that you would give us a discernment and that we would look at our hearts and our lives and the events surrounding us. And if we are pondering and considering with full knowledge, moving ahead in a sin that we know to be against your will, May by your spirit, may guys deal with it right now, tonight, and cut it off so that you can save them. What a great savior you are. We've received mercy and we will continue to receive mercy. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. We do not want to continue to sin against you. We want to learn the lessons. We want to honor you with our, our, our lives. And as we've received grace, we want to live in grace and in power, which you have provided. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.